0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Monday, November 14th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Hillary Clinton, in a call to donors, blamed her loss in part on FBI Director James Comey's announcement that he was reopening his investigation into her emails. A couple of things in that sentence, which haven't been emphasized in coverage of the call to donors... The headline is usually Clinton blames Comey. Here's Washington Post. There are lots of reasons why an election like this is not successful, Clinton told top donors on a farewell conference call Saturday. Okay, so let's acknowledge that. She said there are lots of reasons. It's true. Her defeat was overdetermined. Many different things alone could have caused it. And that message was to donors. And that's important. The audience is important because donors want to know that their money was well spent. Something like, but for the vagaries of chance, you backed a winner. You guys are smart. Do it again next time. You weren't dumb. The deck was stacked. And let's concede the Comey announcement was a blow, but campaigns deal with bad blows. It wasn't the most unprecedented setback a campaign has ever experienced, just seems like that because of recency bias. And let's acknowledge that the Comey inquiry did coincide with a Trump comeback in the polls, so it's easy to see cause and effect. But what also happened during that time, that was the one period where Trump was relatively message disciplined. You've got to concede that if Secretary Clinton had a better grasp of how weak she was in states in the upper Midwest, just understanding that might have been enough to overcome the Comey inquiry. Now, what I would have liked, and maybe she would have said this to another audience, that voter suppression played a big role. Again, overdetermined. I, and the gist, will be looking into voter suppression in the upcoming days and weeks. States with onerous voter ID laws like Wisconsin and Ohio flipped from blue to red in this election. And it was the first presidential election held after the Supreme Court invalidated key parts of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and that affected North Carolina. But there are a bunch of caveats to that. You can't just look at those facts and say, ah, that alone explains it. Like, look at Minnesota. Minnesota, very demographically similar to its neighbor, Wisconsin. No voter ID law in Minnesota. And Hillary's share of the vote cratered from where Obama was. Obama won 220,000 votes. Hillary won by 45,000. So her weakened support there wasn't just denying voters their franchise. There's another reason I would have liked for her to say it was voter suppression and Comey, at least. And that's because voter suppression can be a rallying cause for years to come. It can be something that you do something about, unlike Comey and one candidate's private email server. And it has the benefit of not only rousing the passions of partisans, but being a morally correct cause. On the show today, let's examine in the spiel those special passions of the coastal elites. You know, Red State and Blue State might be more similar than you think. For example, did you know, I found this one exit poll fascinating, the three top issues of Rust Belt voters one, jobs, two, ISIS, and three, the casting of cisgendered actors in trans roles. Did you know that? Okay, I joke. And if I were on a college campus, I might be protested, or at least told that the fake exit poll quip should have come with a trigger warning. So let's talk about political correctness now, the great driving force of the election, apparently. Let's look at college campuses and let's examine the psychological roots of the current crop of complaints. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford,
0: And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case.
1: Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's a conversation I've been wanting to do because so often on this show, I touch upon issues of the climate on campuses. And what you hear coming from the campuses are phrases like trigger warnings and safe spaces. Yet whenever I go to campuses, I don't know, seems sort of like when I was in college or our perception and conception of college. So I really want to know, even if there are some... Are they outliers, some examples that make uh, our eyes roll? How oppressive is the idea of political correctness on college campuses? Jonathan Zimmerman has written a really good book about this that analyzes uh, what's going on and offers an interesting idea as to the whys of it. It's called Campus Politics, What Everyone Needs to Know. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So from what I understand, you're a, (laughs) a professor of education and history at University of Pennsylvania. But give me a sense of your politics.
0: Well, I am a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, and um, I see no reason to disguise this. I've never voted for a Republican. I'm a university professor. I'm Jewish. uh, I have a PhD. Most of us are Democrats, and I fit the mold.
1: And there is such a thing as hate speech, and that is troubling.
0: Absolutely there is. There always has been and probably always will be.
1: What is the everyday lived experience of college life, you know, regarding this political correctness, we're told is run amok.
0: Well, here's the most important thing you have to keep in mind. There are now over 4,000 places to get a BA in the United States. And Mike, the number of campuses in which things like trigger warnings and microaggressions are debated or even known is minuscule. Mm -hmm. It is restricted to the most elite schools. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Schools like, frankly, I attended and teach at, yeah, But they are in no way representative of the bigger college landscape. However, at these elite schools, at this limited number of schools, I do think there are some informal social – pressures and restrictions on the free exchange of ideas and information.
1: If I'm an undergraduate, how common will it be for me to encounter the idea of a trigger warning? And let, let me just say that in terms of being a decent human being, I see absolutely no wrong. I see a good to say, hey, this reading that I'm assigning has some harsh scenes and maybe even some harsh scenes of sexual assault. Be so advised. That's totally proper. But trigger warning, I think, well, as we understand it, gets over applied.
0: On how many campuses would you encounter this concept? Again, very few. Mm -hmm. To your second point, look, when I teach a course on the culture wars, which is something that I study, cultural conflict in the United States, I do unit on pornography and anti-pornography. And in the past, I've shown a film by a former NYU colleague called The Price of Pleasure, which is an anti-pornography film. But in order to make the case against pornography, it has a couple of really nasty porn clips. And I always tell students about that beforehand. And I say, um, you don't have to watch this. This is what's depicted there. It's very nasty and you don't have to watch it. I don't call that a trigger warning, but for all practical purposes, it is. I think the problem is that as with so many of these psychological metaphors, which is really what trigger warning is, it's been expanded to cover a vast territory that it shouldn't cover. So you have people demanding trigger warnings for the Great Gatsby because, you know, there's, viol- there's sexual violence and other kinds of violence in the Great Gatsby, which, by the way, there is. Yeah. There's all sorts of nasty things in every piece of great literature. Uh, but it strikes me if we're asking for trigger warnings for the Great Gatsby, there is something actually that's amiss.
1: And what about the idea of safe spaces, which can be I've heard it argued from, I believe, an an African-American undergrad at the University of Chicago who very much enjoyed uh, his cultural house that he lived in and considered a safe space. And without that, he couldn't flourish. And yet the downside of that is when does a safe space uh, become I can't say anything that offends you for any reason?
0: Well, look, I'm a deep believer in the First Amendment, which gives us a right to affiliate with whomever we want. I think the more complicated question is what the position of the university should be about that, whether the university should be encouraging that or not. There's actually some very interesting research suggesting that when you join one of these university-minted affiliate groups, that your perception of bigotry and prejudice on the campus increases.
1: That, that might not be bad. That, they it would depends. call that an awakening.
0: Uh, perhaps so. Yeah. But I think there is an interesting dialogue to be had there. There's a danger in socializing people to feel aggrieved. Look, we live in a society that's riven by racial prejudice and fantasy. It would be a fantasy to imagine that our colleges would somehow be free of that. That is a fantasy. Mm-hmm. They're part of America. They won't be. Mm-hmm. To me, the more interesting question is what to do about it. Okay, And I do think that there's some troubling evidence suggesting that when we socialize people to feel a certain way and to feel trauma, to feel triggered, that they'll be more likely to do so. Sociologists talk about something called feeling rules, and feeling rules are informal rules in society that bias, not determine, but bias how you're going to react. And so if you're socialized to think that every slight,
1: however small, is going to cause you trauma, it's more likely that you're going to experience it. But isn't, but uh, let me play not even devil's advocate. I, I subscribe to this a little bit. If you look back at the attitudes of, say, black people who are in their 70s or 80s, you will often find people who let a lot of insults slide. And to be aware that there is stimulus in the world that is actually. Uh, discriminating against you, actually putting you down. I mean, that is a, c- a consciousness raising. Now, the consequence, you know, as an educator, the consequence of knowledge is often you feel discomfited by that knowledge.
0: Exactly. And I think we have to remember that all of these metaphors we're using come out of the world of psychology.
1: Yeah. Now, um, that's the big part of your book that I found yes, so fascinating. Yes. So you took trigger warning, you took safe space, you took these phrases and these ideas, not just phrases, microaggressions, and you trace them back to they have psychological basis. You could find these in psychology textbooks of a generation ago.
0: Well, actually, you know, they, they all have different origins, as yeah. you might guess. But, you know, um, the idea of microaggressions does come from work by a guy named Chester Pierce, who was an African-American psychiatrist who worked at Harvard. Yeah. Um, but it didn't really get a lot of traction until 30 years after Pierce wrote it.
1: I remember um, reading about it, maybe when I was in college or a little bit later, and I said, oh, there's an interesting idea. But to look at that as gospel, uh, and what is the state of the idea of microaggressions on the campus you teach? Is it just taken as, yes, of course, there are microaggressions. How could you say otherwise? <laughs> to say otherwise is itself a microaggression.
0: But see, that's exactly the problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, I do not debate the idea or contest the idea that minorities face all sorts of insults in every walk of American life. Again, we live in a society that's full of prejudice. Yeah, I, I wish it were otherwise, but it isn't. But I do think that these metaphors don't lend themselves to political discussion. Psychology and politics don't play well. If you say you were microaggressed, What am I supposed to say? You weren't? I can't say that. And I just think it's extremely difficult to carry on political conversations with psychological metaphors.
1: Is it because psychological metaphors are often filled with jargon? Is that part of it? I don't think it's just that, although that is a problem. I think that they're
0: by definition subjective. I can't debate what you feel. Yeah. All I can debate is what I see. And I do not see what you feel.
1: And it's also there's the unfalsifiable paradigm about it. When I assert that "Ah, what you're doing is subconsciously racist. Well, I can't. The only means of debate I have is on the conscious level. So what am I supposed to do? It's like being accused of magic that I don't even know I'm doing. Precisely.
0: And there's a part of me that really does think it, it, it takes us back to Puritan New England, where in order to be a leader, you had to show that you were saved. It wasn't enough to act well. You had to really be well. And the problem, Mike, is they were pretenders, right? Yeah. There were people that seemed good, but weren't. And and the entire Puritan enterprise was devoted to scrutinizing our internal selves and scrutinizing other people to see who should be the elect, who should be the saved. And it was a fool's errand. We can't do that. We have no way of knowing the internal state of each other's souls.
1: Does, in general, do you think that the ideas of microaggressions taking hold, some of the other uh, psychology-based ideas, has that led to more debate? Well, now I'm aware of this thing called a microaggression, or has it led to less debate? I can't even disagree with you having a microaggression. See, again,
0: precisely because of the way these metaphors work, alas, it's less debate. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you have now some university administrators who are promulgating lists of microaggressions. And the one that's got the most ink because it's the most controversial, is anyone in America can make it if they try hard enough. Right. Now, look, I can imagine many contexts in which that would be an insulting statement. Indeed, I might be insulted myself by it. But for a university administrator, who, by the way, is not even a member of the faculty, which is typically the case, to take an established position on what is, in fact, one of the most hotly contested questions in American life, i.e. the degree of social mobility, this is absurd, yeah. right? Because, of course, we should be debating the degree to which America is a land of opportunity, right? It should be a question. It shouldn't be an answer. Mm-hmm.
1: What is the other side to this argument? What What is the side who thinks who thinks that microaggressions are a proper way to describe these things, who thinks that, you know, one should not even assert that anyone could make it in America. What does that side think that it's getting out of these speech codes? Well, look,
0: I mean, they understand that in some In some universities, minorities have a very difficult time, A, because there's so few of them, B, because often the university doesn't provide um, adequate services for them in different places, and they feel that you, you as a minority person, you're already subject to so much stress, okay, again, another psychological word, that the people around you should be educated in ways that will minimize that stress. That's the argument.
1: I have sometimes expressed an idea that members of my audience disagree with. There was this uh, Mark Kirk statement that I didn't know your... Ancestors, Tammy Duckworth came over and fought with George Washington. <laughs> From and this was called yes, and yeah. this was called an ignorant and racist statement. And I said, well, if it was ignorant, it probably wasn't racist. I would say he didn't know, and they even further said, you know, he had a stroke. Maybe that's why he didn't know. So it's not necessarily racist. And of course, I was assailed for that, and that's fine. I'm not a victim. But one, I only bring it up because there's one strain of assailing me that goes like this: as a white man, you don't get to have that opinion. And how does one, I often ask myself, how does one disagree? What is the what is the way to disagree that you would register it as a disagreement and a point of debate rather than something else, an attack, a nullification of your standing?
0: See, I think here's the right response. The right response always is a response from facts. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, the real problem in this whole debate is we're mixing up thoughts and feelings. And yeah. so we're, we're – and facts and feelings, right? So – The argument that you just described, Mike, assumes a kind of unanimity that's internal to different racial groups. Mm -hmm. And this is false. Okay, that is you can look it up, right? That all African-Americans or all Hispanics feel a certain way at the university.
1: I also hear the assumption that empathy is impossible. You don't know and you could never know. And that's kind of a depressing thought.
0: Well, it is a depressing thought for those of us who teach in the humanities, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a historian. I study dead people.
1: And my last question is, so you mentioned uh, you're you're a professor of history and education and there you are there you were doing protests in the 80s, maybe divestment from South Africa. As I that's think right. about the history of student protesting in this country and others, it seems to me they have almost always been on the right side of issues, and in fact, the issues that students championed wound their way up into the general population from the Vietnam War to maybe civil, rights. civil rights, minimum wage. I mean, yes. so is this going to be the exception? Is this political correctness movement going to be the one that doesn't permeate the rest of society? I don't
0: think so, because again, I think as I said earlier, I think some of the demands are quite consistent with some of the movements that you enumerated in the past, right? I mean, the idea that we we need a more diverse student body, we need a more diverse faculty.
1: But that is this right? that is this um, idea 10 years ago. I mean, if this political correctness, let's call it that as the shorthand, if these speech codes take hold in society, then, you know, a controversial speaker can't even be booked in town hall. I'm not yes. even talking about on campus at Columbia. Yes. You know, a, a, an editorial I don't like won't just say cancel my subscription. You know, the editor will have to apologize for using <laughs> a microaggressive term.
0: Look, I mean, I, my hope is that's going to run its course. You know, and let's be really clear, not every college student goes in for this. Mm -hmm. You know, I do think that, and now I'm going to really sound like a gray beard, I do think that there's a little bit of a lack of historical consciousness among some students, not all, about how vital free speech has been to the oppressed of this country. You look at figures like Frederick Douglas or William Lloyd Garrison, right up to Eugene Debs and Martin Luther King, these people were all vociferous advocates for free speech because they understood that to change anything in the United States, you needed that. And I think that some of our students have forgotten that and they think free speech is like, oh, this privilege of the white man or the people in power. And I think that's just a fundamentally ahistoric idea. Every great tribune for justice in this country has also been a tribune for free speech because they know they won't get justice without it.
1: Campus Politics, What Everyone Needs to Know. Jonathan Zimmerman is the author. He is a University of Pennsylvania professor of education and history. Thank you, Jonathan.
0: Thanks. It was fun.
1: And now the spiel. Steve Bannon is the proprietor of Breitbart, the website which narrowly edged out the Daily Forward as most likely to point out a pundit's Jewish heritage. He advised candidate Trump, advised him all the way up to the status of president-elect Trump. And once he's president Trump, Bannon will take on the role of advisor in the White House. Yes, Stephen Bannon, fosterer of what's euphemistically called the alt-right, which is just a rebranding phrase for regular old white nationalism. This is appalling. This is inevitable. This is appallingly inevitable. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Why am I concerned about this? Isn't me being concerned about the advisor to a president? Doesn't that just mark me as a coastal elite? Do you think the mill worker cares? Do you think the disaffected factory foreman cares? All this palaver about Steve Bannon, what with the Muslim bashing and the race baiting and the gay shaming. I mean, caring about that That's an indulgence or rather that separates me from the concerns of real Americans. And I really don't think real Americans know or care about Steve Bannon. So why should I? Isn't that what's limiting me from understanding the real issues of this election? Maybe I learned about the importance of the advisors of the president. Maybe I learned about that in one of the classes I took In college, yeah, I went to college. And going to college, I think, made me a more informed person or, and this is equally plausible, that curious people are drawn to college. But now, as a guy who cares about Steve Bannon, who thinks it's awful, and does so at least in part based or correlated with a college education, my God, what an indulgence that is and valuing college and using it as a proxy for being less ignorant. Well, let's cue Meet the Press. First, we're going to hear from a reporter who covers rural America, and then Chuck Todd and David Brooks rush in to say sorry. Every time you heard about these polls, you would heard that educated white voters were,
0: were going for Clinton while people with uh, without college degrees or had no college supported Trump. I think they took some of these things that were said over and over throughout the last four or five months of the campaign, also very personally themselves, that rural America is not uneducated, uh, even though maybe there are fewer people with college degrees than there might be in uh, the metropolitan areas. That stung me yeah. because I, I, when we would say these things, it was an academic exercise. Right. But the minute he said it, I was like, yeah. oh, my my late father would have kicked me in the rear. For- yeah, mm-hmm. I, I had that just watching that mia culpa because it is demographically true, demographically yes. true that people with college degrees voted very differently than people with high school degrees. But when you say it, when you actually don't have a college degree you hear, oh, they think I'm stupider. Yeah,
1: That's not and so at all.
0: I'm guilty of that because I use that shorthand, yeah. too. And, and you saw so much sense of moral injury when you went around the Trump world, which I've been doing the right. last seven months. Yes. It's I used to have a code of respectability. And those people are trying to take it away. And the number of times this year I heard flyover country. You guys think we're flyover country. Mm. Of course, you've always heard that. But I heard it like every hour. So did I.
1: Now, this brings me to some of my thoughts about President-elect Trump's plan not to allow insurers to deny coverage for pre-existing conditions. See, I hear that. And I know that it inevitably leads to a discussion of something called community rates. Guaranteed issue at community rates guaranteed issue require that the rates that an insurer gives apply to everyone. So that means if you have guaranteed community rates, you're going to have to have something like an individual mandate that people buy their insurance beforehand. Anyway, the point is, if you say, I want to keep the pre-existing condition clause of Obamacare, if you understand how healthcare works, that is based on a foundation, which in turn is based on a foundation, which pretty much leads you down the road of Obamacare. Either we have Obamacare or you don't. You just can't have the good parts without the parts that, you know, pay for it or make the good parts possible. Analogy. It's like I said, you know, everyone should have a fur coat. I just don't want to hurt any animals. One inevitably leads to another. But let's think about for a second how I even came to acquire all those points of views imbued by information. You know, I may have read about it in a newspaper. I may have understood what the newspaper was saying because I listened to a podcast or I've even like gone on the Brookings website and read about Obamacare. You don't have to, but there are many avenues of information out there. Don't all of them run counter to the idea that Liberal elitism or college education or education at all is somehow at a remove from the real feelings of America. I just don't know how to process this. I do not know how to apologize for my college education. I do not know how to privilege the understanding of the despondent mill worker over the facts that I just laid out about what will happen with Obamacare. Or the truth about the nature of Steve Bannon. I suppose the average American doesn't care about all the details. They just know they want their health care. But they also know they want their health care to be cheap. And they also know they don't want to pay for other people's health care. And they also know that they don't want to have to confront that sad news of millions of Americans without health care. So, in order to process all of this information, here's all I can do. Here's all you can do. We'll try to utilize our command of facts. We'll try to rely on the power of inference, and we'll test our ability to make connections between these and other ideas. Call that applying my education or indulging in elitism. I just call it thinking, and I'm not sure if there's another way to do it. That's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who's fascinated by this exit poll that showed that 6 in 10 voters said they did not think Trump was qualified to be president, and yet 20% of those voters voted for him anyway. Chris Berube figures that 20% believes very much in on-the-job training. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, asks, How blind can a blind trust be when all your assets have your name on the outside of the building? Andy Bowers, Chief Content Officer of the Panoply Network, was waiting for the part in 60 Minutes where Tiffany talked, or was even in frame. The gist, I draw you to the number two story on Breitbart today, Stephen K. Bannon, friend of the Jewish people, defender of Israel. peru Depu peru, and thanks for listening.